Hello and welcome to episode 18 of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. In this episode, we continue our discussion of Union General George Henry Thomas, one of the most interesting and impactful leaders of the Civil War. Now, the entire Army of the Cumberland, including its commander, William S. Rosecrans, had just been routed from the field by the Confederates under Braxton Bragg. The entire army, that is, except for George Thomas's troops on Snodgrass Hill and Horseshoe Ridge. Thomas was given the title Rock of Chickamauga after saving the army from destruction on September 20th of 1863. He was able to rally his troops and fight off repeated attacks from Bragg's Confederate Army of Tennessee until nightfall. Bragg's fixation on destroying Thomas's position, even while the rest of Rosecrans' army was beaten and in full flight, was the Union Army's salvation that day. Then, through a carefully exec- executed rearguard action and luck, quite frankly, Thomas was able to extricate his forces from the battlefield and then retreat back to Chattanooga and rejoin, rejoin the rest of the army. From Bruce Catton. Rosecrans' army was broken and driven off, and it escaped actual destruction only because of a fabulous last-ditch defense directed by General George H. Thomas, who kept the defeat from becoming a total rout. By this, uh, September the 22nd, the badly beaten Army of the Cumberland was back in Chattanooga, hemmed in by triumphant Confederates and beginning to wonder whether it was ever going to get out alive. So now let's talk about the Chattanooga campaign. Indeed, the Union Army was hemmed in Chattanooga by the Confederates, and their supplies were running low. In Washington, there was panic over the prospect of losing the Army, and Grant was called over from Mississippi along with General Sherman to save the day. Also, from the Army of the Potomac in the east, two corps were dispatched to Chattanooga under the command of Fighting Joe Hooker. The two corps were commanded by Oliver Otis Howard and Henry Slocum, respectively. As this was going on, it was becoming clear to all involved that Rosecrans was no longer able to lead his army. In fact, most believed he had lost his senses following the Chickamauga debacle. Rosecrans' telegrams made it clear he was becoming unhinged. And Lincoln was quoted as saying Rosecrans was, quote, confused and stunned like a duck hit on the head, unquote. Now, U.S. Grant will come into the picture in a big way right now. In fact, over in Mississippi, Grant was ordered to travel to Louisville, where he was to meet at the Galt House with a, quote, officer of the War Department, unquote. Grant complied. And as he was arriving at the Louisville station by train, he was met on the train by Secretary of War himself, Edwin Stanton. Stanton informed Grant he had been promoted to head of a new military district called the District of the Mississippi. This new district covered everything from the Alleghenies to the Mississippi, with all the territory and armies in between, except for Louisiana. This, of course, now put him in charge of the Union Army of the Cumberland, which was in peril and surrounded by Bragg's Army of Tennessee in Chattanooga. His first decision that he was asked to make was whether to replace Rosecrans with Thomas at the head of the army. This was an easy decision based on what Grant had heard and read in the newspapers. Now, again, there was panic in Washington because rumors were swirling that Rosecrans was planning to evacuate Chattanooga. 
So at once, Grant telegrammed the command change to Thomas and ordered him to, quote, hold Chattanooga at all hazards. I will be there as soon as possible, unquote. Thomas responded to this by return telegraph, quote, I will hold this town till we starve, unquote. Grant immediately headed to Chattanooga by the only way available during the siege. This was by train to Stevenson, Alabama, and then on horseback 60 miles through the mountains north of Chattanooga. Grant was to do this in the pouring rain with an injured leg that was very painful and had him on crutches. According to John Rollins, chief of Grant's staff, this was the most harrowing ride of Grant's life. When he finally arrived into Chattanooga, his initial encounter with Thomas was frosty. Grant was nearly immobile from his injury and drenched with rain from his trip. Thomas was not expecting Grant to arrive so soon and had made no preparations for Grant's arrival. There were painfully awkward moments after Grant arrived at Thomas's headquarters until finally James Wilson spoke up and said, General Thomas, General Grant has been on the road for two days. He is wet and suffering from a bruised leg. Besides, he is tired and hungry. Can't you get him some dry clothes and some supper? Well, that broke the spell, and Thomas moved at once in the most hospitable manner to furnish rooms, dry clothes, and supper for his guests. Now, this speaks again for Thomas's need for preparation. And this is probably a good time to discuss the issue of Grant's relationship with Thomas. One could argue they were polar opposites. Grant was pushing and tenacious. He was willing to take desperate chances. Thomas, on the other hand, was cool, quiet, careful, and a calculator of chances. Ron Chernow described Thomas in this way. With a reticence reminiscent of Grant, Thomas had a cool relationship with him. The commander of the 45,000-strong Army of the Cumberland had a broad, meaty face, a tight beard, tensely arched brows, set mouth, and stern gaze. With his dignified manner, commanding presence, and superb judgment, quote, he had more the character of George Washington than any other man I, I, I ever knew, quote, unquote, said Dana. Unlike Robert E. Lee, the heavyset Virginian had decided that the treasonous nature of secession surpassed loyalty to his home state and stayed with the Union. He was often described by contemporaries as appearing like George Washington. Catton said, He was massive, majestic, self-contained, and people who tried to describe him usually began by comparing him with George Washington. Grant, in his writings, would sometimes characterize Thomas as being slow, but later paid him homage by calling him, quote, One of the great names of our history, one of the greatest heroes of our war, a rare and noble character in every way worthy of his fame, unquote. With Grant's arrival, the first order of business was to get the army fed and supplied. This was accomplished by activating a plan already developed by William Baldy Smith, so, 
On the moonlit night of October 27th, Thomas's men loaded on barges, slipped past a Confederate position, and stealthily landed at Brown's Ferry, overwhelming a meagerly defended Confederate post. Smith's men were ferried over and laid down a pontoon bridge across the Tennessee River. General Hooker arrived soon with 16,000 men from the Army of the Potomac and quickly consolidated control of the area. This finally broke open the route from Bridgeport to Chattanooga, ending the siege and semi-starvation of the Federal troops there. They yelled with joy, The cracker line is open! Full rations, boys! Suddenly, with food and supplies pouring in, the Federals were better supplied and more numerous than the rebels they ha- who had ha- held them under siege. Now, this is an oversimplification of what actually happened here. The plan was intricate and expertly pulled off by some pretty daring men, energized by Thomas's preparations and, most impo- importantly, by Grant's arrival. Also, the upstream logistics necessary to make all this happen was the work of General Grenville Dodge. To bring in supplies, Dodge had rebuilt 182 bridges, some of them spanning huge chasms. Also, Dodge and his men restored 102 miles of railroad that had been destroyed by the rebel armies in Alabama and and Middle Tennessee. This was an amazing engineering masterwork, especially if you consider this work was done mainly with axes, picks, and spades. Now, once supplies started coming in, the Federals could turn their attention to offensive operations, and this was made much easier by the actions of Braxton Bragg. That's because just after the so-called cracker line of supplies was opened up by the Federals, Bragg made the critical error of sending James Longstreet, along with 20,000 men away from Chattanooga, to attack General uh, Ambrose Burnside in Knoxville. We discussed this in the previous series. Also, as we discussed, Bragg was the cause of great discord and infighting within his own command, and he couldn't feed his army, which is maybe a minor point. The outcome of this was a severe drop in Confederate morale and many desertions. According to Sam Watkins, the condition of the rebel troops was as follows, quote, The soldiers were starved and almost naked and covered all over with lice and campage and filth and dirt. The men looked sick, hollow-eyed and heartbroken, living principally upon parched corn, which had been picked out of the mud and dirt under the feet of the officers' horses. The only commander in Bragg's army who was able to keep the fighting spirit of his troops alive was Patrick Claiborne. Now the rebels were on the back foot and the Union forces were, were ready to begin their offensive. Grant's plan was simple but daring. He would attack the rebels on both flanks and in the center. The main attack would be on the far left by Sherman's troops just arriving from uh, the Army of the Tennessee, uh, who had just come over from Mississippi. First, let's discuss the lay of the land. Chattanooga was a small city at the time on the south bank of the Tennessee River. Right in front of the city is Missionary Ridge, a hill 300 feet high, which runs mainly north to south, and the face was covered with ravines, crags, and trees. Bragg's rebel troops occupied the heights of Missionary Ridge, which looked all but impregnable to attack from the city below. On the northernmost point of Missionary Ridge was Tunnel Hill. This was the farthest left of of the Union position. 
Sherman's divisions from the Army of the Tennessee would attack from the north at Tunnel Hill, while Thomas's troops in the center right in front of Missionary Ridge would carry out a diversionary attack. On the far right or south, Hooker's troops, now part of Thomas's Army of the Cumberland, would attack the southernmost point at Lookout Mountain. Now, Lookout Mountain rose 1,000 feet above the city, and, like Missionary Ridge, was heavily populated with Bragg's Confederates. Before the Federals began their offensive operations, they appeared hopelessly bottled up in the city, surrounded by insurmountable heights, but this was about to change. Grant's plan for the Union Army was simple but daring. Daring because every part of his plan, including fighting uphill against a well-entrenched enemy. The first phase of the plan was for Thomas's men in the center to advance forward to a more commanding position facing Missionary Ridge. So, early in the afternoon of, of November the 23rd, the Army of the Cumberland swept across the open plain in front of Missionary Ridge and overran a small cluster of hills, including an elevation called Orchard Knob, which gave the Federals a perfect location for a command post. From Stephen E. Woodworth. Thomas liked to do things first class or not at all, and for the moment against Orchard Knob he massed no less than four divisions, 23,000 men in parade ground order, out in front of the Union breastworks. Long lines, tight ranks, bright flags snapping in the November breeze all made a picture of war as the thousands of watching veterans had always imagined it before enlisting and never seen it again. This forward movement served to position the Army of the Cumberland forward to a better jumping-off point for their diversionary attack against the heights of Missionary Ridge. As we discussed, however, the main show was to be on Sherman's attack on the far north or left of the Union position at Tunnel Hill. Tunnel Hill was only lightly defended at the time, and Grant believed to attack there would allow Sherman to roll up the rebel position by flanking them from north to south down the length of Missionary Ridge. At the time, this seemed like an excellent plan, but things would not go as planned. The third phase of the attack, which was to happen simultaneously, would be at the far south at Lookout Mountain. Now, Lookout Mountain was a huge, imposing obstacle for the Union troops, and they didn't think there was much chance of taking that position by storm. The best they could hope for would be to tie up the rebels and hold them in place with a diversionary attack, while Sherman's main flank attack from the north won the day. However, General Thomas had placed Fighting Joe Hooker in command of this attack, and Hooker had something to prove. This was November of 1863, and just over six months previous, Joe Hooker had been humiliated by Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson at the Battle of Chancellorsville. Hooker was not about to let this chance for redemption escape him, so on the morning of November 24th, uh, George Thomas's men looked on from their position in the great open valley below Missionary Ridge, and Hooker's men went into action in the heights of Lookout Mountain. Supported by Thomas's guns at Moccasin Point, the Federals led by Cruft and Osterhaus, both of them actually from Sherman's army, 
began to clear the western slope of the big mountain and swung around to attack the northern slope. The Yankees were not to be denied. The ground was steep, cluttered with boulders and cut with gullies, and there was a dense fog so that the men fought blindly. But they pushed on up the slope against entrenched rebel positions with heavy fighting. The noise of battle was intense, and from the valley below, Thomas's men could hear a titanic struggle taking place as the sound waves echoed off the vertical rock walls above, but they could not see due to the fog. From Bruce Catton Then, unexpectedly, came one of the improbable dramatic moments of this battle of Chattanooga. The Confederate defensive line on lookout now extended from south to north facing west, and at mid-afternoon it began to give way, and at that moment the fog suddenly drifted away. The sun came out. The whole scene was visible. The men of the Army of the Cumberland could see everything. The Confederates were in full retreat, and around the curving slope came rank after rank of Hooker's men, flags flying, rifle barrels shining in the sunlight, victory achieved in plain view of everybody, and Thomas's soldiers jumped up and yelled and tossed their caps in the air. Regimental bands spontaneously began to play from one end of the line to the other. The artillery fired wild salutes aimed haphazardly at Missionary Ridge, and the noise of the fighting was drowned in the noise of the general jubilee. The next morning, Hooker's men planted the American flag atop the summit, drawing universal hurrahs from Union troops down below. Hooker's victory, known afterward as the Battle Above the Clouds, thrilled the nation. Then came what was meant to be the main event. On November the 25th, Sherman's army attacked the enemy. However, this enemy was none other than Patrick Claiborne's division, the toughest in the rebel army. They had just rushed back from the train station after an order from Bragg was rescinded that would have taken them to Knoxville. Instead, they were heavily engaged against Sherman's forces and were holding their ground. The fact is that due to bad maps and less than thorough preparation, Sherman was actually not where he thought he was, or where he was supposed to be at Tunnel Hill. Instead, he was at a lesser hill just to the north. Also, due to the terrain conditions, Sherman was not able to bring all of his men into action at once, but instead was only able to send in the men in piecemeal to be decimated by Claiborne's fierce resistance at close range. Sherman's men did finally make it to Tunnel Hill, and they got a foothold, but by then Claiborne was using localized counterattacks to roll back the threatening advances. From Stephen E. Woodworth, With a superior grasp of the terrain, careful planning, and a commanding position, and a good deal of upfront leadership, Claiborne had bested Sherman, at least for this day. Now, Grant was getting nervous from his command post in the center on Orchard Knob. His main attack on the left was failing, so he started sending troops away from Thomas's army in front of Missionary Ridge to support Sherman, but this did not help. So Grant decided to press forward with the third phase of the attack, which was originally planned to occur as Sherman was rolling up the rebel flank. 
This was for Thomas's men to proceed forward to the foot of Missionary Ridge and take the rifle pits at the base of the hill. Then they would stop to await orders. In the rifle pits and breastworks, the rebels awaited in grim silence as the long Union lines came on with gleaming bayonets. 23,000 men from Thomas's command stepped off with flags waving as Confederates watched in awe from the heights of Missionary Ridge. The Federals marched right into the rifle pits as the rebels blasted away with their muskets and cannon. The advancing line bore down irresistibly upon them, and the rebels in the rifle pits fled up the ridge to the safety at the top. Now Thomas's troops were in control of the rifle pits at the base, and they were expected to stop and await further orders. However, the fire coming down on them from the heights was fearsome, and their new position was untenable. Benson Bobrick writes, But to a man they understood the folly of that and continued on. As one eyewitness put it, quote, The situation offered them the opportunity to stand still and die, to go forward without orders, to stop the destructive fire to which they were exposed, or to retreat on the same condition to avoid it. The men in the ranks and their immediate commanders chose to go forward, unquote and in doing so commit, executed the most spectacular assault of the war. The men of Thomas's army fought their way up the ridge, seeking shelter uh, as they went from boulders, crags, and trees. Now they had two advantages as they surged upward. One, they were pursuing fleeing rebels whose comrades at the top were afraid of shooting at them. And two, the ridge was so steep most of the Confederate guns could not be depressed low enough to fire on them. Also, the Confederates had wrongly posted their breastworks and artillery at the physical crest of the hill instead of the military crest. That made it difficult for rebels to defend against the final approaches of Thomas's men as they went over the top. Again from Bobrick. Who gave that order, demanded Grant, turning to Thomas. I know of no one giving such orders, he replied. Grant glared at Granger. Did you order them up? No, said Granger. They are going without orders. When those fellows get started, all hell can't stop them. But as he spoke, the men mounted to the, to the summit, leaped into Bragg's entrenchments. Along the line of the ridge, at six different points, the troops belonging to Thomas could be seen pouring over the enemy breastworks and planting their flags. Again, from Woodworth. Who was the very first to break the Confederate line can never be known. Indeed, it seems to have broken simultaneously in at least half a dozen places and practically everywhere else not too long after that. The stories were much the same. Up toward the northern end, the 14th Corps worked its way up the base of the steep spur on which a Confederate battery was posted. The 2nd Minnesota led a bayonet charge this time, piling into the Confederate redoubt before the Southerners fairly realized they were being attacked. Fierce hand-to-hand fighting lasted only a few minutes, and the brigade took most of the battery's guns. From there, the Confederate line unraveled rapidly all the way up to within a mile of Claiborne's Tunnel Hill position. Sheridan's exultant troops fought their way over the crest, as had their comrades on either flank. The fiery Sheridan urged them on vigorously, 
Recognizing the 73rd Illinois, he called out, I know you, fix bayonets and go ahead. Over in the 24th Wisconsin, the regimental adjutant, 18-year-old Arthur MacArthur, seized the flag and shouted, On Wisconsin! and led his regiment over the top. Now, Arthur MacArthur would, would go on to win the Medal of Honor for this action. And his son, General Douglas MacArthur, would go on to fame in World War II and eventually would be named General of the Army. It is believed that one of the first units to make it to the top of Missionary Ridge was Thomas J. Wood's division. You may recall from our last episode that Wood's division had opened up the gap right as Longstreet attacked and routed the Army of the Cumberland at Chickamauga. If this is so, then Wood's action here makes a fitting bookend to the Chattanooga-Chickamauga storyline. My ancestor Elijah Jones was fighting in the artillery of the Confederate General Patton Anderson's division, which was posted at the crest of Missionary Ridge for this battle. I believe he must have been amongst the troops who were routed from their positions on the ridge as Thomas's army topped the hill and Bragg's army fled. Again from Chernow. One Union soldier recorded thousands of rebel soldiers fleeing in a disorderly route down the rear slope of Missionary Ridge, jettisoning battle paraphernalia in their haste. Quote, Gray-clad men rushed wildly down the hill into the woods, tossing away knapsacks, muskets, and blankets as they ran, unquote. Indeed, Bragg's army was routed from the field in similar fashion as Rosecrans had been two months earlier. If not for the heroic efforts of Patrick Claiborne's division, Bragg's army could have been cut off and destroyed. Claiborne's rearguard action against Sheridan that night, and again at Ringgold Gap against Hooker, allowed many of Bragg's army to escape, although many thousands were captured. As we discussed in the previous series, Washington was frantic about the situation in Knoxville. They were clamoring for Grant to send reinforcements to save Burnside's Army of the Ohio from Longstreet's assault. This took Grant's and Thomas's attention away from the fleeing rebel army and helped Bragg to make his personal escape. Nevertheless, the army of Tennessee no longer was a fighting force and would need to be reconstituted later by Joseph E. Johnson in Georgia. The slave aristocracy broken down, the grandest stroke yet struck for our country, trumpeted Quartermaster General Montgomery Meigs. George Templeton Strong pronounced the Chattanooga campaign the heaviest blow the country has yet dealt at rebellion. So join me next time as we continue our discussion of General George H. Thomas.